0: Welcome to CCC's Podcast Series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, July 7th, 2023. Today as we do each week. We check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese with Publishers Weekly joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. After we last spoke, Andrew, before the 4th of July holiday break, you were off to Chicago for the American Library Association annual conference. In your conference report for PW this week, you said the show was resurgent. Yeah, it
1: definitely was a step in the right direction, and and not only for the ALA, but I think for the future of in-person publishing industry events, too. It felt really good to be back together in a major way. Now You could read PW's coverage of the show on the website. My colleague Claire Kirk was on hand for the show, too. Had some great speakers. Uh, we talked about Judy Bloom opening the show. She was fantastic. Uh, Even Max Kendi. There were some terrific sessions. So do check out the coverage on the PW website. Um, I have to say, too, I was disappointed actually. I actually had to leave the show early due to a family emergency. Uh, everybody's okay, but I had to rush back to the airport on Saturday where I was stuck on a tarmac for many hours. And apparently that was nothing compared to what was to come. Storms on the East Coast. Apparently impacted air travel, and if you're on Twitter, you have probably heard a lot of stories about travel nightmares of so many people who were trying to get home from ALA. Now, that's not uncommon, right? Bad weather and travel delays are pretty common in airports these days. But I think it's something the industry hasn't, you know, probably missed <laughs> over the last few years of virtual shows. I think it was it felt new again to a lot of people, I guess. Um, and I swear, being stuck in an airport. Uh, waiting on the weather. We probably could have held an industry conference just from the number of people who are stuck in O'Hare after ALA. But even that, even all of the travel nightmares aside, I don't think that would change people's minds to how positive and how excited they were to be at the ALA in Chicago. And what a strong
0: show it really was. And as you reported in PW, the numbers were up from last year's show in Washington, D.C., but were they up to levels you had expected to see? Yeah, so that's a key question, I think. So ALA officials reported a pretty solid bump
1: in attendance over 2022. Uh, The preliminary figures right now are at 15,852 attendees, I think. So almost 16,000. Now, for perspective, that's well below the 23,400 that the conference drew to its last conference that was in Chicago. Chicago always draws very well. Uh, That show was in June of 2017. Like I said, 23,400. That's a big number. But the 16,000 almost that were there this year, that's a nice bump from the 14,000 or so who were in last year's event, the comeback event in Washington, D.C., the first in-person event after the pandemic restrictions. But I I don't think I'm alone in wondering what to make of what this all means going forward, whether that big bump in attendance is something that can be sustained uh, and what it's going to be like next year. And frankly, I think next year is going to be tough. Now, Make no mistake, this year's ALA conference was exactly what the library and the publishing community, for that matter, really needed. It was a relentlessly positive show. It bordered on a love fest at times, uh, whether it was on the show stages or in the meeting rooms or on the show floor. Librarians were being praised for their work and they were being supported uh, and they were being lauded for standing up to this organized political attack on the freedom to read, which we've talked about on the show quite a bit and which was very much the theme of the conference. There was a real sense at ALA this year that there is now – Some kind of organized response from the library and publishing communities and the author communities, as well as advocacy groups and politicians as well, who are now recognizing the political nature of this attack on the freedom to read and are committed, finally committed to fighting back and and fighting back in an organized way. So that was really great to see. And really what I got from this conference uh, from the time that I was there isn't something you can really get at a Zoom session, right? That feeling of community, of being together. Uh, now, you can get a lot from Zoom, and you can get a lot of information from Zoom, and a lot of great meetings and things can happen on Zoom. But you know, like I said, being together, the sense of community, I think it really made a difference in the face of this you know, very high-stakes battle over the freedom to read. And, and I know it meant a lot to all the people who were able to be there.
0: And why do you expect that 2024 will prove an even tougher year for ALA than this one?
1: I think a few reasons. First is that, you know, the fight for the freedom to read is really in a critical phase. And all the positive signs and the great words and everything that we heard at the show this year have to be backed up with action. And that's going to be a lot of work. It is going to be a hard, hard task ahead to, you know, win this fight for the freedom to read. So that's going to be weighing on people, I think, throughout this year and, and into next year. But really, next year's ALA, it's in San Diego. I love San Diego. I love California, but it's not an easy destination to get to. And I have to say, even though San Diego is be- one of the best convention sites I've ever been to, it's really beautiful. But still, it's a long flight and a lot of the publishing and library communities are here on the East Coast. And you know that brings me to the next complicating factor too, and that's budgets and the economy. I think this year is really proving to be a tough year, a bit of a tougher year economically than many publishers and librarians thought it might be. And I think I actually think this year's numbers in Chicago would have been a lot better uh, if the budgets were a little bit better and the economy was a little, a little bit better for libraries and, and publishers. So I feel like that that's an open question about where things are going to be next year in terms of budgets. And I, I have to say I'm getting a sense that budgets are not going to really improve very much anytime soon. Still, lots of great takeaways from this year's ALA. Again, you can read all about them on the PW site. But as for next year, I think there's a lot of open questions and we'll have to see how the rest of this year plays out and early next year. But I'll also take this opportunity to say this. It's important to take the long view here, right? I mean, the the pandemic and the political environment we're now in, they're frankly unprecedented. And I don't think we should expect that we're just going to bounce back from these challenges overnight. I think it's going to take a period of years. There's going to be ups and downs. Uh, The rebound isn't going to be a straight line back to growth. There's going to be some jagged lines there, some ups and downs, and that's okay. I think as long as we stay focused on where we need to be, I'm confident we'll all get there eventually.
0: In California, two authors who claim their works were illegally used to train OpenAI's ChatGPT have opened a copyright class action suit.
1: Yeah, here we go. That's, That's when I saw this suit. That was my immediate thought. The copyright fight over AI has begun, though in my opinion, in somewhat of a very very minor way, in fact. Uh, and, and next week, I'll have more on this development right now. So so look for that piece in next week's PW. But for now, if you know about this suit, I'll give you some broad impressions. Two authors have filed a suit on behalf of a potential class. They're both Massachusetts-based authors. Paul Tremblay, whose books include The Cabin at the End of the World, and Mona Awad, whose books include 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, and Bunny. The authors allege that Uh, ChatGPT has been able to give detailed summaries of the author's books, which they say suggest that the books were copied and used as part of ChatGPT's training. Uh, All this without permission or payment. In other words, copyright infringement. Uh, The suit asks for injunctive relief and damages. Like I said, it's a potential class action suit, so they're looking for more authors to join the suit. The suit also questions whether ChatGPT itself is it infringing derivative work based on the plaintiffs copyrighted books, which I think is, frankly, an absurd claim. Uh, if that was logic held, then the internet would be an infringe a derivative work, uh, which you know clearly it's not. And also, they question whether the text outputs of ChatGPT are infringing derivative works too. Again, I think that's pretty much a stretch. OpenAI has yet to respond to the suit, but suffice it to say, I think this is a shot over the bow from the copyright side when it comes to this developing technology of artificial intelligence. Although I think at this point, it's a fairly questionable shot. That, that's in my opinion.
0: What's your analysis, Andrew,
1: on the claims presented in the lawsuit? Yeah, well, you know, again, I'll have to say, I'm certainly not surprised that the suit was filed, but I think this suit reads more like a placeholder, right? It, it's like, you know, the the the, the, the firm here looked at the landscape and saw the AI litigation train is getting ready to leave the station and wanted it on. So here we are. We've got a copyright suit based on artificial intelligence and how ChatGPT trains its model. Now, as for the complaint and the claims in there, I think they're pretty skimpy at this point. First of all, there's no proof or any stipulation that OpenAI actually copied the books in question here illegally, only an inference that they did. Uh, and I have to wonder whether there's enough here to actually establish a prima facie case of copyright infringement. And even if the authors clear that hurdle, you I know, mean, I think I've said before that, you know, the copyright approach may not be the best way to approach the challenges that creators are going to face with AI. And I think this complaint is going to face some of those challenges. There are a number of cases obviously out there, the Google case, cheap among them, that have established that books can be copied for transformative purposes. In Google's case – They copied books to create an index. In OpenAI's case, it's to provide this chatbot, which really, in effect, is just a more refined form of search and display, obviously, in a much more engaging way. But here's something that jumps out to me, too. In the Google case, Google actually scanned the books, right? They actually made what were then allegedly illegal copies at the time, and that ended up being a fair use. Now, in this case... OpenAI simply ingested the content, which was already in digital form, right? There's no allegation that they scanned or made these copies. You know, they more or less, you know, scraped the internet and used books that were into put into a database for them. But more to the point, I think getting a judge to find that ChatGPT and generative AI isn't transformational when Google Books was found to be transformational. I think that's going to be a really high bar to clear. You know, I think it's fair to say AI is probably the most transformative thing we've seen in this business, uh, maybe ever, which is why so many publishers and authors are so concerned about its impact. And I think it's fair to say, too, that AI built only on licensed works wouldn't really be very intelligent, really, wouldn't really be AI at all. It would certainly be a shell of what the technology promises. Uh, And it's just, for me, it's really hard to see how a court would find otherwise. So as long as AI doesn't start distributing full copies or something else that would tip it into copyright infringement, I just don't see how this case will progress. But we'll have to see what comes next. You know, I think at this point, the suit stands more as a declaration of concern than as a a real copyright issue or a real case of concern. But you never know how the courts are going to view these things. So, also, want to take this opportunity to point back to James Grimmelman's landmark 2016 article, "Copyright for Literate Robots." Uh, if you have a chance, go to Google, check it out. You know, download that paper again. It's online for free. That piece really has been guiding my thinking at this point. And I urge you all to check it out. In that piece, uh, James Grimmelman. Notes how copyright law basically allows for robotic ingestion of books, and understandably so, but how that doesn't really take into account what copyright law is basically meant to serve. And that's human interests, right? You know, it's easy to see how bulk, non expressive copying promotes progress in artificial intelligence, Gilman writes at one point, but much harder to articulate any kind of connection between that copying and the kind of research that's needed to guarantee that the resulting product, the AI, in the end, respects human goals. And I think that's ultimately the question that we're all going to have to work towards, right? We want these AI engines to be as good and as powerful as possible, but how in the end do we balance those AI engines, that power, with human goals? And I think that's gonna require some policy tools that I just don't think exist in the copyright toolbox right now. Anyway, more to come on this case. Fascinating that we finally have a copyright case here in AI. It would be one to watch. Uh, And of course, we'll have more on AI in the coming weeks too, I'm sure.
0: Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on the program, science publications are typically written by scientists and for scientists. Yet the audience for science is far wider, especially any reporting on medical breakthroughs in treatments of serious diseases. While plain language summaries of articles and abstracts are increasingly available, the story is more complicated than plain. Dr. Catherine Richards Galini, a healthcare publications editor at Carger Publishers, advises that creating effective plain language summaries requires looking beyond the language she says that editors and scientists should have an understanding of health literacy in the general population and an appreciation of patient preferences health literacy is about our ability to understand healthcare information to evaluate it is it reliable is it is it trustworthy that's a big thing at the moment of course health literacy is about being able to communicate effectively with healthcare providers asking the right questions, understanding the responses we get back, expressing concern or worry, um, this, this kind of thing, and to express our preferences. And I think health literacy is also about being able to act on the information that we're given or that we read or that we hear to make informed decisions about our health care and the health care of the people that we're responsible for, our loved ones, our children, etc. Plain language summaries go beyond the language. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. (music)